what that practitioner is trying to do is pull the patient or the client into the practitioner's world and that world is where they lack cultural knowledge versus actually stepping into the patient's world first and work from there. Hello and welcome to A Slice in Time with me, Linda, host of Witlands, What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, a platform for discussing topics crucial to health that are typically not taught, glossed over, or approached from the wrong angles in medicine and public discourse. As always, stay up to date by following me at Witlands on Instagram and Twitter. Further reading and references for this episode can be found in the show notes on lindadoes.com, my website which also has a lot of other good stuff on it. And my usual disclaimer, this is a podcast for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended as individual medical advice. In this week's episode, I was delighted to chat to nutritionist Ameza Maduka about giving culturally relevant healthcare advice. This was prompted by an Instagram post of hers I saw a few months ago now. Amiza explains the concepts of implicit bias and power distance which often results in healthcare professionals giving certain populations such as ethnic minorities suboptimal advice with detrimental effects. We also talk about what to keep in mind in order to give better advice and generally discuss language, culture and food. I'd like to apologise for the slightly iffy sound quality this week and I hope you still enjoy the content. There's a lot of good stuff covered so let's get straight into it. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today. If you could just introduce yourself a bit and talk a little bit about who you are and what you do for people that haven't met you before. So my name is Ameza and I'm a registered nutritionist. So I started as an, an undergrad within nutrition and then I went to work within global product development and consumer research, which was a lot of fun. But then I realized that I wanted to actually focus on nutrition. So I went back to do my um, master's in clinical nutrition. So now work as a nutritionist in both public and private settings via my um, consultancy, which is called Life's Recipe. Great. And how long have you been doing that for? Uh, the consultancy for just over a year. My previous work was for about six years within a nutrition space. It's been in and out for a few years, but essentially full-time nutritionist for just over a year now. That's great. That's exciting. And why were you interested in nutrition to start with? Is that a recent interest or has it been there for a longer time? It has been there since oh, probably about age 15 or so. Um, mm-hmm. I always had an interest in food and the body and I never really knew that there was something that could kind of combine the two together mm-hmm. until I remember doing a UCAS test or something to kind of determine what sort of subjects will suit to yeah. someone who, you know, likes these certain things. And then nutrition came up and I remember doing a, a short course in nutrition during my sixth form and I absolutely loved it. I just thought this is this is it. This is what I want to do. And I did my undergrad in nutrition and got led astray <laughs> because mm-hmm. the company that I wanted to work in had food brands at the time that I applied and by the time I got the internship they had sold their food brands <laughs> so oh. it was a fantastic job it's just eventually I realized it wasn't what I wanted to do so mm-hmm. went back to nutrition so you said you were about 15 do you remember was there anything in particular that kind of sparked your interest or I do I do actually remember on the short course there was a handout 
that had different uh, vitamins, mm-hmm. you know, from vitamin A, B and, and everything that they did. And I remember sticking that on my wall. I know, you know, people usually have posters. Of yeah. stuff. No, I would have a vitamin chart. <laughs> so I remember sticking that on my wall and thinking, this is so fascinating. You know, if I have vitamin A, it relates to this and vitamin D relates to this. And I just thought it was just the most fascinating thing. I remember losing that chart and thinking, oh, gosh, it's been with me for so many years. I know. That's a funny story. But yeah, I mean, you're among other nutrition nerds, so it's totally fine. I'm sure others yeah. will have <laughs> shared the fascination. So, yeah, I... Uh, a couple of months back, I saw someone had shared your Instagram post about giving culturally relevant or culturally appropriate advice. And mm. that kind of made me think a bit more because so I'm half Iranian. So I grew up with a lot of kind of Persian food culture and stuff. And it made me realize that general advice is often kind of based around this kind of Eurocentric view of what mm. people eat and what they buy and food products are available. And um I thought that was so interesting because it's so obvious and it's mm. been obvious to me, but I've not never actually thought about it. And then, mm. of course, how that translates to healthcare professionals, maybe not being aware of all this and giving advice that people can't even take on board. And so I just really wanted to talk to you about that. Yeah. And yeah, so, I mean, white experiences, is it's no secret that they're centered all the time in all spaces, whether it comes to food or national holidays or like language even and when did you first kind of notice that this was an issue in nutrition yeah. I don't know if there was a moment or if like for me for example I realized after your post I was like oh this says I've always known this but I've never actually thought about it <laughs> yes yeah and I think exactly what you just said there about you've always known it's there but you've just never really been like ah oh, actually mm-hmm. that's that's true and I guess that's because, you know, because of this whole Eurocentric um, way of, you know, this view that we have, it's it's seen as the norm. It's like, well, this is all there is. So why would we go against the grain? But it was, you know, you see it at wellness events, you know, you see the speaker selection. Um, hopefully this will be different moving forward because mm. of all the awareness that's been raised. But, you know, the I, I always bring up the topic um when I was given a diabetes talk to a predominantly Caribbean elderly community. And that's actually when I then realized actually what I'm delivering is not actually very much culturally relevant to the group I'm serving. Mm-hmm. And whilst, you know, like you said, it's, it's, it, it was, it's very obvious. It's just not something that we always um, talk about. So I'll just explain this was in the post as well, but I'll explain what happened during that time. So I was given a um, a talk to to this community, and I I showed them the Eat Well Guide. So the Eat Well Guide has very much, I guess you can say, very much um, Eurocentric focused foods. Mm-hmm. And for the people I was speaking to, it was it was it was very foreign to them. It didn't represent the foods that they were familiar with. And I remember one lady saying, "So does that mean that I can't have my plantain, my yam, my chocho?" Like because these things aren't on here does that mean I now have to stop eating what I'm eating and Mm. I think what happened in that room was like everybody was just agreeing and was like yeah this is this is true oh wait 
oh, what, what does this mean then? Does this mean my food is bad? Does this? And everyone, you could just see the confusion just starting to rise in the room. And I just literally had to stop. <laughs> yeah. Wrap my presentation and just really speak to them with their cultural reference in mind. And bear in mind that Britain is very much multicultural and every culture based upon their environment, uh, you know, social politics, political history has developed its own traditions around food Mm. but currently within the healthcare community or the wellness community there's this view of a correct diet or a eurocentric diet and essentially a body image reflecting these cultural norms as well Mm. which is very much reflected on the dominant white culture but it's really important to understand that nutrition related chronic diseases remain the number one health issue within communities of colour. So we are essentially not really directing our messages to the people who actually need it the most. And that's where I realised, ah, there's, there's something going, there's something wrong here. Hmm. Yeah, and I remember you also said, or you wrote it somewhere, that someone was confused about like spaghetti, which is something that yeah. like most people would be like, okay, that's like a standard kind of, European Italian meal and then some of them was like grossed up by them and I was like if yeah. you've not seen it before and if you look at it with different eyes of course you're going to think that's strange yeah that that was a very extreme case that was my grandma <laughs> Love who, it though. who had came from Nigeria but that's just that's an extreme case to mm-hmm. actually highlight that what we might see as something normal people may not see as normal absolutely you know? And so you said that this was kind of when you were giving a talk. Did you see this already at university and what you were taught? Or was it only later that, that it came to you? It was more so later because at university, essentially, you know, you're being taught from a place where you didn't know mm. anything anyway. So you just assume that, you know, everything here is hunky-dory, which, which it was, you know, it's all fantastic information. But, you know, they, they do only have a space of a short space of time to teach you all of the basics of nutrition. It's then what we do with continuing professional development after that, continually to learn about other things as well. Because if we were to learn every single thing in nutrition, we could be there for a good 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, and things are always changing. So this is sure. why CPD comes into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I relate to that as well in terms of, I'm in final year now in medical school, but most of the, I mean, the first few years I just kind of spent taking everything that I was told as like the absolute truth and like the Mm -hmm. best quality information. And it's only in recent years I've started to kind of look at other information sources and learn more for myself, which is what I'll have to continue doing because obviously, like you say, it doesn't stop after you've graduated. There's more. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, just in general, people are learning to question society and things around them as well which is how it should be and yeah so we've kind of established that of course their different cultures have different they have different takes on different things but Mm -hmm. why does it matter do you think that there is a direct link in terms of health inequalities and higher rates of chronic disease in certain populations so BAME populations or do you think that it's not really related I think it's related Um, and this also comes down to implicit bias which is essentially having a bias towards a certain uh, group of people or things like that so when we 
look at implicit bias because we know that from research and also from you know client and patient testimonies that it's prevalent within healthcare and research has shown that some doctors assume that certain black or low income patients are this is not to say everybody every doctor does but just this was the research yeah of course that, um some patients are you know less intelligent or less likely to engage in you know risky behaviors and they're or sorry more likely to engage in risky behaviors mm-hmm. but less likely to adhere to medical advice so they may give them less detailed advice mm-hmm. and if you now couple that with something that's called um there's this uh, theory called power distance so it assumes that certain cultures have different um, power distances so those with a high power distance um, generally from african and asian um, backgrounds are taught to not really question authority too much so those with lower power distance expect to kind of participate in decisions that will affect them so they will readily question authority mm-hmm. even if then you know they're not 100% keen on the advice given to them so if you now take the fact that certain doctors assume that black or low income patients are less likely to adhere to medical advice so they give them less um, detailed advice with the fact that African and Asians don't often question the authority of the doctors what happens is that they may leave that room not having the best advice given to them and Mm. not even questioning that as well so thinking that that's actually the best advice that's given to them because they don't question that authority not to say that all people don't question that authority but some people don't and what we find is that a lack of cultural awareness fuels this implicit bias and so implicit bias is essentially the learned stereotypes that are sometimes unintentional but deeply ingrained and able to influence um, behavior and decision making imagine if let's say somebody is a, a pre-diabetic but just like borderline like so they might be on 42 on the hba1c mm-hmm. yeah and the doctor may feel that they may not refer them to a pre-diabetes program because i don't you know will they really stick to it yeah but then you know they might not be diabetic at that point but by leaving them on, by not sharing the the right information and the patient not knowing this as well, Mm. it might leave them, leave the patient in the dark about what their underlying health issues could be or, and things like that. So it's just, um, yes, the answer is yes. (laughs) Yeah. I I knew it would be yes, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, of course. For anyone that's listening as well, in episode three, I spoke to two of my fellow medical students and we spoke more about the medical student perspective on race but it's kind of this idea that it's racism rather than race that kills and increases the risk of chronic disease as well and just like Mm. you're saying that is because of implicit bias and actions that are taken around rather than thinking that everyone's completely biologically different and the, Mm. the othering that occurs often and yeah I think it's just you know of course everyone should be given all the, the information that you can so that they can make their decision themselves but if the the doctor or the healthcare professional or some player in between the information and the patient ends up kind of making decisions for them and like you say thinking oh they wouldn't follow it anyway mm-hmm. or they wouldn't benefit from it anyway that's when there's 
when you enter dangerous territory. Yeah, and especially if you if there are people who might not speak English very well, someone might end up dismissing them just because you know it's too difficult to actually deal with and just give them like basic information when mm. really and truly that patient or client could actually be really wanting the correct information really trying to understand well you mentioned briefly only but the whole kind of different body types as well I find that very interesting because I'm quite interested in health at every size and body inclusivity and and all of that mm. stuff as well and often people will kind of use arbitrary measures such as BMI or just body type and stereotype people or based on that give them advice or not give them advice too which can be harmful yeah and I think also there is a bit of or maybe not a bit of a lot of guilting as well that kind of goes on and there's in the way that even within the kind of wellness and nutrition sphere that people might talk about um, other people's habits wanting to do good I think but then Mm. saying there are higher rates of obesity because of the way that these populations are eating and then you should be eating like this instead and this is what you should be doing yeah and um, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here but that's definitely (laughs) one of the kind of the problematic aspects of it as well this kind of wanting to help but then by giving advice the wrong way being also very shaming and kind of blaming of the cultures in the in and of themselves too Exactly. And imagine if you had, you know, due to the very much that the culture that we live in, where, you know, essentially praises thinner bodies. Mm. If you had a larger person and a really thin person having the same issues, let's say, you know, they they went and they, they had something wrong with them. You might look at the large person and think, okay, maybe it's because they're overweight. But then with the thinner person what would you say then it's like Mm. we're looking at weight as the first determinant um and it's also important to understand that weight loss does not mean health you know um i remember reading a post of someone who um was praised for her weight loss and Mm. she was loving it she was like oh great this is great not realizing that actually she had cancer and didn't it went unnoticed Mm. and also on the flip side gaining weight is not a sign of being lazy or things like that it could actually be quite healthy for some people but also it could be just be something that's naturally happening as well um so yeah it's just understanding that that's it's you know weight loss is not something to be praised and weight gain is not something to be seen as you know you being lazy i remember when i went to nigeria and when i had just got engaged and my cousins were talking about you know, a traditional wedding and things like that. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, gosh, Amesa, you need to, you definitely need to eat. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was like, I was like, oh, why? They said, no, 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 you can't, because we have these traditional beads that we put on our necks and they like go over our shoulders a little bit. Mm-hmm. And she said, you cannot have your bones sticking out, you know, <laughs> of mm-hmm. your chest because the beads just won't lay well. And it's just so interesting to see how one di- one culture views bodies versus another culture and just yeah. seeing how, you know, a different body type is praised in a different culture versus it's it's just it's just very interesting to observe. Yeah. And well this is kind of c- coming away from the topic but but I don't mind. It's it's interesting <laughs> that 
Um, also, different cultures are more prone to commenting on bodies. I mean, I think that there's a lot of commenting general in general on social media, but then I know mm. that from some Middle Eastern cultures or South Asian, just like that, people from different families will have a lot to say about, especially yeah. women's bodies, and, and comment <laughs> yeah, very liberally on it in a different way to what I think. It, I don't think it happens in the same way at all in European cultures from what I've kind of experienced other than on social media. But family members just take the liberty in a totally different way, which is quite interesting and not, not that yeah. great, I think, most of the time. But N- Not yeah. great, but yeah. it's one thing to understand. And this is, uh, I might get onto it, but it's one thing to understand the cultural worlds that people live in or just the, the worlds that people live in. So I understand that it can be, especially a, a Nigerian living in the UK, I get to see both worlds and I'm mm-hmm. sure that's the same with you and many other people as well let's say in the Nigeria culture they're very much direct in how they speak that's how they've grown up when I went to um, Nigeria for the first time in a long while I remember uh, my cousin asking me oh do you want to eat this and I was like yeah I don't mind mm-hmm. and she was like so was that a yes or a no yeah I, like, I don't mind I don't mind and she was literally like have you said yes or have you said no because currently you said I don't mind I don't really like for her it's like I don't know what I don't mind means it's a yes or a no and I started to realize aha I have to say yes or no but if I say anything that's quite vague it's not well understood because Mm -hmm. they're very much direct so that's the that's the way that they have grown up and I've grown up in a very much indirect way of speaking Mm. and whilst I could get annoyed with my family in Nigeria they might say certain things like for example if I if I pronounce an Igbo word so Igbo is the dialect um if I pronounce an Igbo word weirdly they would just laugh at me like laugh like actually laugh in my face and for me that's rude (laughs) but for them it's like I remember my auntie saying well we laugh to encourage you and I just thought that makes no sense to me at all but that's the world that they are in so Mm -hmm. getting annoyed with how they you know talk about bodies or talk about this and that it's I guess it's kind of not counterproductive but what it it is it's not taking into account their lived experiences and their world Mm -hmm. so it's kind of what if if you do want them to I guess treat you differently or speak to you differently it's coming into that world first and then working from that as opposed to saying no that's rude you shouldn't say that Mm. because what's happening is now you're trying to drag them into your own world as opposed to stepping into their world and working from there Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah it does to me yeah that's how we have to really work as different cultures as well because as much as I am a Nigerian I'm a British born Nigerian so I have a slightly different culture Mm. to a Nigerian born Nigerian so it's just really understanding those real different nuances thank you for that we're both quite involved in the plant-based nutrition movement specifically Mm. and especially with plant-based nutrition there's this overlap with veganism as well because obviously veganism is not a diet it's a it's a lifestyle but you would follow a fully plant-based diet as a vegan Mm. and then there is this whole 
kind of whitewashing of veganism as well. Mm. A lot of cultural cuisines from other places will have been plant-based naturally for a long time and then there's all of these kind of modern influencers or people coming in kind of appropriating it and taking it as their own if that makes sense and there's also this mm, I don't know if saberism is the right word here but a lot of people that that advocate for plant-based nutrition will talk about how it's can solve all health problems and again coming back to this kind of guilting idea of saying you've been eating wrong the way you've been eating your foods have been wrong and you should be eating in this way this is the correct plant-based diet and so on yeah Yeah, I was wondering some issues that you've noticed in terms of the plant-based movement or veganism have been that you think need addressing yeah um I think what is often lacking or or not really being understood is that when it comes to food and culture sometimes food forms part of people's identity Mm. so by essentially I guess colonizing a food it can feel like for some cultures that you're essentially robbing their identity as well yeah so I'll give the common example I'm sure if you google it you'll probably find the African peanut stew what has been said like when you just blanket that term of African peanut stew you're not really giving or paying I guess homage to the actual uh, origins of that stew as well so for Mm -hmm. example if you go to Sierra Leone you've got peanut stew if you go to Nigeria you've got peanut stew if you go to Ghana you've got peanut stew they're all very different Mm. so by then saying African peanut stew what that indicates to some people is that you actually have not done any uh, research into that food. And it's not to say that every single food you cook, you have to research it. It's, it's, it's when you're actually then, I guess, monetizing it or things like that and not actually getting a sense of the, the culture that it comes from, that's when it starts to become an issue for some people. It's one thing to explore different cuisines and things like that, but it's also about valuing voice as well and valuing the voices of, of, and the, the stories that's behind it as well so that you can actually really um I guess just do value to the to the view to the food that you're cooking as well yeah. so I guess it's some people might say you know what's wrong with just cooking a thing like that there's nothing wrong with just finding another recipe and cooking it it's, it's like I said it's when you then put it into a public space of, this is a this is an amazing novel food yeah and it's like well no it's actually not and it, it, I guess it, it, sent, it starts to also kind of patronise the people who have also grown up on that food as well. So mm-hmm. I'll give the example, let's say, of the same role of a jerk rice. You know, that, that went very viral. And so many people were just like, what, what is jerk rice, Jamie Oliver? Like, that's not, that's not a thing, <laughs> you know. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, that's how it shows that food is related to people's identity. Um, so it's just very much paying attention to that and also um I'll use the example again of this whole palm oil boycott happened mm-hmm. um because of the you know everybody said that it was endangering orangutans and things like that but I remember someone asking me and they were from Ghana they said to me so this palm oil boycott that's happening and I didn't really know what was going on at the time does that mean I need to stop having my shoes with with my palm oil 
um, which you've got stews that without palm oil, it's like it doesn't really make the stew anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people, some people were very much confused, especially people from um, African communities, because it's like I don't understand what my African palm oil has to do with orangutans in Asia. I just and <laughs> for them it was just like I need I need some help here. So palm oil essentially originated within Africa and during like the industrial revolution the Europeans realized how valuable it was and started to grow it in certain Asian countries and so what happened is that you know they'll clear trees and things like that clear lands where I guess essentially animals did live so it was starting to cause an issue Mm -hmm. because they were using it for other purposes whereas before this you know you had people in certain parts of Africa who were just using it fine just but just you know cooking and things like that but then now that it's become an issue there it's now become demonized everywhere and Mm. what happened is with this whole palm oil boycott is that it wasn't actually taken into account that the people eating the palm oil who were eating it traditionally were being demonized for eating it they were just like well we've been doing this for hundreds of years (laughs) and now that it's becoming an issue because of industrialization, now it's now reflecting on us. That's not very fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's often the case for many things that the kind of the blame is misplaced and it's often has its roots in racism and capitalism and other isms. Yeah. What do you think about health and plant-based nutrition and culture and giving advice? and how healthcare professionals are talking about it. Um, I mean, I think that many of the bigger names probably are white people as well. So do you have any thoughts in terms of how they're giving health advice and talking about plant-based diets? I think the first step is to actually, well, in any problem, is to, is to recognise it as existence. Understanding that every decision we make is through our own personal lens over that you know our personal lens is developed from our experiences our you know past events how we even perceive perceive knowledge and things like that and understanding that because of this it can create an unconscious bias you know this is based on our own personal perception and views in the world but it's important to also know that things are not always as they appear that everybody in a sense, has a unconscious bias. It's about recognising that. And then it's really about developing a drive to step out and learn. When you make the effort to learn about a new culture, your mind starts to open up to new possibilities. So instead of looking difficult to deal with, these differences actually become quite interesting and exciting. I've heard a comment that someone said... um, they will never know until, you know, unless they try something different. And I get the comment and it, it might be, you know, said with the best intention. But if this is the first point of call when it comes to dealing with clients and patients, mm-hmm. then this is actually doing a disservice to the, to, to the client. And that's because what we're trying to do and what I said before is what that practitioner is trying to do is pull the patient or the client into the practitioner's world and that world is where they lack cultural knowledge 
mm-hmm. versus actually stepping into the patient's world first and work from there. And changes can always be made within a cultural context. So it's really about just flipping that way of thinking by understanding that, yes, they won't know something until they try something different. But if you don't have that cultural understanding first, you will always try to draw people into your own world. And I would say, like, think about ways that we can engross ourselves into a new culture. And this can be very uncomfortable sometimes, but it's something that actually needs to be done. We're we're essentially a global community. The whole world is. We're so connected in a way that has never been seen Mm. in the years before. So whether that is going to a market and just discreetly observing how people interact with family members, strangers, customers, even you know, foreigners that come into the, the supermarket as well. And just under, like seeing what you understand or what you notice about like their communication styles, their body language, um, eye contact, saying goodbye. I remember the first time I went into a Chinese supermarket was with my with, with my Chinese friend. Mm-hmm. And I remember the interaction she had with the shopkeeper and I remember her calling her auntie. And I, I remember saying to my friend, oh, you call people auntie too, if, even if they're not um, your auntie. She mm-hmm. said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we started having a, a cultural dialogue about just how the Chinese culture and, and the Nigerian culture, that similarities, differences and things like that. And it's, you know, it's just, it's just great to, um, to have those conversations. And I also remember another time when I went to Sweden to visit my brother. He was, um, he was living there at the time. And he invited um, us to this barbecue style gathering. I remember the only thing that was on the table were crayfish, eggs, and <laughs> like and ciders and things like that. I just thought, such a strange barbecue. Like who would just have crayfish, eggs, and, and beer and cider? Like I don't get it. And it turns out that I had actually entered <laughs> a traditional Nordic celebration. Yeah. Um, Called a crayfish party. Well, you you would know, yeah. isn't it? Because um, you're Swedish. So I had no idea. I was just like, I don't get it. And it was really interesting to observe just how people would interact with each other, and you know, even just like passing the different foods to each other. Like it was for me when I go to like a, a gathering, you know, with food on the table. You would just, you know, you'd take whatever, take you know, everyone just take food, but in this setting, people were asking, can I have some of the this? Can I have some of that? And I just thought, this is really different. Like, mm. I've, I've not observed someone having to ask, can I have an egg, please? Or can I have this? It was just, it was it was very interesting. But what happened is it, it also opened a door to have conversations, to ask questions, and to even understand what is going on? <laughs> so I was just really able to immerse myself in something different to the norm. Obviously, travel at the moment is limited. So like I said, you know, you can go to a grocery store or even like when you're going to a grocery store, looking at what's on the shelves and even seeing what is not on the shelves. How are the products displayed? What's in the middle aisle? What's in the top aisle? I say that because I, when I used to work in product development, I used to do this a lot, look at shelves, <laughs> because obviously we had to look at the way products were placed on shelves and things like that. 
and a lot of my previous job was actually understanding cultural habits and perception on like global projects so um, one product may be perceived differently in a different country than another country so yeah it, it's yeah, I could I could really go on. It's interesting. <laughs> on, yeah, yeah, I but... loved I love the description of the the crayfish um, tradition <laughs> as well from an exterior perspective. Yeah. How do you try and give culturally relevant advice to your clients? Would you kind of sit down with them and, or virtually now I suppose, but do you kind of get a bit of a feel for what their usual diet includes, what the what foods they eat, and kind of thinking about food groups in terms of like thinking okay so that's vegetables that's fruits Mm. that's grains or like how how do you go about it yes and exactly that it's really understanding what their usual diets are what their Mm -hmm. usual habits are as well because essentially it's not only just to do with food food and language are things that are seen on the surface so yes it's very much about understanding what their usual foods are but there are so many other things that we don't see that impact culture as well. You know, I spoke about the fact that some people may not question authority or things yeah. like that. So then asking questions to actually open up that dialogue to allow them to understand that, you know, do you, if you if you do disagree with something or if you do have something to to share, please do allowing that um, that open conversation to happen as well. But mm-hmm. also just their approaches to decision making tone of voice, gestures, conversational patterns as well. So like I said about my cousins who are very much direct as opposed to um, my British way of being not so direct, just really understanding those things as well. So if, if, if I was to, you know, have a conversation with someone and say, oh, no, what I just said before about, yeah, I don't mind. If I was having that conversation in a clinical setting or something, it would be quite vague. Mm. So... Yes, it's about food, but also it's about understanding there are things other than food and other than language and other than things that we see on the surface that can impact when we are dealing with a a patient or a client as well. Yeah, that's great. I love that. That's really important to keep in mind Mm. for anyone that's interacting with patients or, or people in general. I'd be interested to hear you as well talk a little bit about the wellness and colour initiative that you've mm. been that you've started and what you do with that. So wellness and colour is literally an Instagram page that I started earlier this year, March, I think. And that was just because I was just noticing that a lot of the information out there was like I said, very much Eurocentric and very much not catering to the black community and um, not just the black community, but other um, ethnic minorities as well. I, I don't really like saying the word ethnic minorities, but other groups as well. And I just thought maybe they just we just need a space for that. And it's it's essentially um, sharing professionals who are giving that information to meet the needs of the black community. And even like when it comes to food ideas, sharing those diverse food ideas as well sharing things that essentially very much do relate to to different cultures and just yeah just creating that space being open to answer any questions that people have it's very much in the infancy stage but I just felt like there was a space that was needed and so I just thought 
I'll just create it. And it, you know, some people have come back and said, you know, please continue this because I, I do need it. Like even when the whole vitamin D thing happened and with the immunity and things like that, it was a bit confusing. And one thing that we I realized is that when it came to talking about our vitamin D needs in terms of sunlight, it was very much, we always heard 15 minutes of sun should get you the amount of vitamin D that you need. Whereas what was not often said is actually, if you have a darker skin tone, you might need up to 45 minutes of sun. Yeah. And those are the things that, you know, just to highlight things that are actually relevant, not just to the, um, to the sort of white population. So that was just a space for that. And um, yeah, everyone's, everyone's welcome to, to, <laughs> actually view it and look at it it's just very much catered to a group that I felt like we're not really being catered to. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that and if people want to get in touch or just see what you get up to where are the best places to find you and to reach out? You can find me on at life's underscore recipe on Instagram and actually on all social platforms as well that's probably the best way to see um, some of the information I share and things like that. Or you can also follow wellness underscore in underscore colour. <laughs> the cultural relevant advice is actually on both pages, but mm-hmm. it's um, more so on wellness and colour. Great. And because this podcast is called What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, I like to end the episodes with a final question asking what is one thing that you wish was more focused in medical education and something that all doctors should know that they maybe don't really seem to Hmm. it would possibly be understanding cultural intelligence but also understanding ourselves and how we can impact decisions that are made to influence patient outcomes as well if that's even a thing, but <laughs> that's that's kind of what I feel like needs to be discussed as well. Mm-hmm. So do you mean people understanding that they themselves have power or influence mm-hmm. in what they say and do? Yeah, and just understanding that we have a bias and that we need to recognise that when we are dealing with patients and clients. Okay, great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and uh, for what you've been saying you're welcome and that's our episode i really hope you enjoyed it and learned something new please share with others if you did and check out the show notes to follow meza i would also recommend listening to episodes three and nine of woodlands which cover some aspects of racism in medicine there's lots more to be found in the show notes for those episodes as well as always, the best way to get in touch with me or give me feedback is on Instagram or Twitter at Woodlands. Thank you so much for listening. I hope to have you back as a listener on the show next week. Have a fabulous rest of the day. Bye! <laughs>